0: But today, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 16. We've been looking at the resurrection, and we're going to look at just verses 14 and 15 today. <clears throat> it says in Mark sixteen fourteen, And afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of hearts, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you appeared to those men that day, that first Easter, when they were in disbelief and in fear, cowering behind walls. You appeared. You revealed yourself. You built faith in them, and then you commissioned them to go into the world. Lord, would you do the same thing with us today? as we talk about the historical validity of your resurrection, would you build faith in us? And Lord, more than faith, would you build a fire in us? A fire to communicate the gospel, a fire to speak of our risen Savior, of the risen King. Lord, we confess that all too often we're quiet about it. You rose from the grave. You conquered sin. You conquered death. You conquered the enemy. And so often we just sit silent in the midst of Sin and heartbreak and tragedy and the work of the devil. And, Lord, would you just begin to change us? Would you build a fire in us for evangelism, Lord? Pray that today, as you teach us through your word, you would commission people to be evangelists, missionaries, preacher, teacher, pastors, that they would go forth with the good news, Lord. So I submit my mind and my tongue to you, I ask that you would author my thoughts and help me to communicate your wonderful truths. ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we also looked at and highlighted and spent some time talking about some of the benefits that are available to you and I because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember that we spoke about the idea of glorification. We also spoke about justification and sanctification. And we started that off with regeneration. And we realize that all of those benefits are made possible, not just because Jesus died on the cross and was buried, but because he rose from the dead. Without his resurrection from the dead, the cross has no meaning. It was a resurrection from the dead that puts a stamp of approval of the Father upon what Jesus did on the cross. Excuse me. And without the resurrection from the dead, our faith is worthless. Last week we looked at First Corinthians 15:17, and it says, "If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins." But I hope to persuade you today that it is reasonable to be fully convinced that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is actual, factual and historical. And that your faith as a Christian is not a blind leap into darkness, but it's founded on fact, it is historical, it is evidential, and therefore it is defensible. And in doing this, we're going to be following the outline of Scripture, the defense that the Scripture puts forth uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at first the evidence from the Gospel accounts. Then we'll be looking at the evidence from the book of 1 Corinthians And then the evidence from the book of Acts. And these will be tools that you can use. As you share the Lord with people, remembering that the pivotal issue is the resurrection of the Lord. If he truly predicted and pulled off his own resurrection, then his words beyond anyone else in history have validity. And he has proven himself to be the only way to heaven, the only Savior, the unique Son of God, God in the flesh. The pivotal issue is, Is the resurrection. Christianity and the resurrection stand or fall together. Therefore, I charge you today, Christian, that you must have at least a basic working knowledge of how to defend the validity of the resurrection from the scriptures. So if you pay attention, by the end of today, you'll be able to turn to just three different books in your Bible and demonstrate to people from the scriptures and with logic and history that he truly rose from the dead. If you're able to get a little, a little handle on defending the resurrection, here's what you'll do for people. You'll remove the question, is Christianity valid from the realm of philosophy into the realm of history. It no longer becomes a question of ideology and thought exchange, philosophy. It becomes a question of history and founded upon fact. And what that does in the heart of a man and woman is it pushes them rightly to a decision. As they're confronted with truth, the world is full of so many ideas and philosophies contrary to one another, opposing one another, exalting themselves against one another. But when we come and we speak facts and historical reality coupled with the Holy Spirit working through the power of the gospel, it pushes men and women to a reasonable decision for Jesus Christ. So I want you to pay attention and look first at the evidence from the Gospels concerning the empty tomb. Please turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. When you get there, go to Matthew 28. That's what I meant. Matthew chapter 28 We're going to read the first seven verses. It'll be review for us concerning the events of the resurrection that we spoke of last week. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. I love that picture. There is an earthquake, there is a rumbling, and an angel rolls away the stone, and he sits upon it. It is such a wonderful picture of victory, of absolute victory over sin and death, that he's sitting on the stone that Jesus could not be held by death. Amen? Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow, speaking of the angel. And the garments, or the garments, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So the fact that the gospel likes, wants to put forward at this point is that the tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. I want you to see how those who were opposed to the gospel, opposed to the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ, dealt with the empty tomb. Go to verse 11. It says, Now while they were on their way, speaking to the women on their way to report to the disciples what they had seen, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, and said, You are to say... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this should come to the governor's ears, that is Pontius Pilate. We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Very important that you know here that from the very beginning, the fact that the tomb was empty has never been the question. There was not a denial of the empty tomb. Rather, they sought to explain what may have happened to the body. And so the directive from those who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was to the Roman soldiers, tell everybody that the disciples came and stole the body. And then they said, if Pontius Pilate gets mad at you, we'll defend you. Don't worry, because if a Roman soldier failed at his post, it was punishable by death. And so they bribed them with money, said, we'll protect you from Pontius Pilate. You tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. Not that they actually believed that. That was a lie. That was a cover-up. But in coming up with that lie and that cover-up, what were they confessing? That the tomb was empty. There is a confession from those who were anti-Christ, against the cause of Christ, that the tomb was empty that day. And so... In a court of law, this would be called positive evidence from a hostile source. Dr. Paul Mayer, who is a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, says this. This is called positive evidence from a hostile source, which is the strongest kind of historical evidence. In essence, this means that if a source admits a fact decidedly not in its favor, then the fact is genuine. Understand that. It did not help the cause of the religious leaders at all that the body was missing. And yet, confessing to the empty tomb, they come up and try to explain why the body was gone. Historian Ron Sider says, if the Christians and their Jewish opponents both agreed that the tomb was empty, we have little choice but to accept the empty tomb as a historical fact. Understand that there has never been anybody who has presented the body. There has never been a single person or piece of evidence in history that has said, no, 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 the tomb was not empty that day. Never in all of history. And so Dr. Paul again, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, says this. If all evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research, not because some dumb pastor says so, but according to the canons of historical research to conclude that the tomb was actually empty that day. And no thread of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, those are inscriptions, or archaeology that would disprove that statement. Did you hear that? Not a single shred of evidence has ever been presented to the contrary that the tomb was empty that day. So... It's not even a question whether or not the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. What the question then becomes is, what happened to the body? And the cover-up, of course, was the disciples stole the body. Is it possible? Because people still believe that today. You may be sharing the Lord with people. Oh, he didn't rise from the dead. The disciples took the body and wanted people to think that. Let's think logically for a minute. Is it at all conceivable that the disciples could have stole the body that day? I want you to look now in chapter 27, starting in verse 57. It's concerning the burial of Jesus and the securing of his tomb. Matthew 27, 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. We spoke of him last week. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now, on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, that is Saturday now, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir... We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard. In other words, he gave them a Roman guard and said, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the tomb. Now, the religious leaders wanted to make absolutely sure that nobody could steal the body. They never thought for a moment that Jesus would rise from the dead, but they remembered that he claimed he would. So they say to Pilate, We need to secure this tomb, lest there come a deception. And so Pilate said to them, You have a guard. A guard is four to sixteen Roman soldiers take the guard, make the tomb as secure as you know how, and place the Roman seal upon it. The Roman seal was a ribbon that would have went across the front, and with clay it would be attached on either side, and then the signet of the Roman governor would be pressed in there. And what that seal meant, they did it with envelopes and deliveries and different things, was that nobody was to violate that area. Nobody could break the seal unless authorized by the Roman government. In fact, immediately after the time of Jesus, we find from historical sources that breaking a seal that was on a tomb in Israel became punishable by death from the Roman government. We have uncovered historical writings in Nazareth, an inscription that said, if anybody violates a tomb and removes the body when it has been sealed by Rome... It shall be punishable by death for them. They found that in Nazareth dates to just after the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What event do you think could have made the Romans put this law in their book? It wasn't on the books before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Afterward, we find this historical document that says, okay, it's punishable by death to mess with the seal. In other words, the seal was broken. We just read that the angel rolled away the tomb, rolled away the stone, excuse me. But is it possible to think That these disciples, who were by every measure of the word, cowards, weren't they? Lord, we're willing to go to prison and to death with you, they said that night at the Last Supper. And then they go into the garden, and as soon as the enemy comes, they all take off. They didn't even show up for the cross. It was all women, except for the Apostle John, there at the cross. We ought to have the women play flag football. They're probably tougher than the men. But these guys were cowards. They fled that night. Peter denied knowing Jesus Christ three times when little girls recognized him. We're told in the book of John that at this point, before Jesus reveals himself to them, they are behind locked doors in a room fearing the Jews. Their Messiah has been crucified. They're behind locked doors gathered together, not believing that he'll be resurrected, afraid of the Jews. Are we to believe that they somehow mustered up enough courage, these 11, to go against possibly 16 Roman soldiers and try to defeat them and then steal the body and pull off the greatest deception the world has ever known? How could we think that they could defeat the Roman soldiers? The Roman soldier was the greatest fighting machine the world has ever known trained to defend six square yards of ground to the death. Sixteen of them would have been more than enough to cover the front of that tomb. They would have made minced meat out of the disciples in an instant. Are we to think that while they were sleeping, as the elders suggested, the Romans say, that they could sneak by? Not at all. Romans in those days, when they were guarding a post, if there were 16 of them a guard, 12 of them would sleep in a semicircle with their heads facing toward whatever they were guarding, and then there would be four awake on the inside, fully alert, ready to defend. Are we to think that the disciples snuck past 12 of those guards, defeated the other four, rolled away the stone, which, by the way, weighed one and a half to two tons, And then stole the body? Not just stole the body, but disposed of it so thoroughly that no one in history has ever claimed to see the dead body of Jesus Christ. Not only disposed of it so thoroughly after having defeated the Romans and broke the Roman seal, but then lied for the rest of their lives that he was risen. For the rest of their lives, to the point of death, every one of them having been martyred except for John, for their belief in a risen Lord. Are we to believe that all these men who at one time followed Jesus were ready to die for a lie? It's inconceivable. Maybe one of them would have died for a lie. Maybe two. Not 11 of them would have died for a lie. Not to mention the thousands of others who have died because of the risen Jesus Christ. It's inconceivable and impossible to think that those men could have stolen the body. It makes more sense to think that the women would have mustered up the courage and come and stole the body. Amen? I heard no men say amen. (laughs) Here's where this all comes together. What did the disciples preach after the day of Pentecost when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, being the promise from the risen Lord? What did they preach? They preached a risen Savior. Where did they preach it? It's not a trick question. In Jerusalem, they preached a risen Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, in the town where he was crucified. Had he been in the grave, all anyone would have had to have done when they heard Peter preaching the risen Lord is walk over to the grave and say, he's right there, he's in the grave. If somebody wanted to quench Christianity, and we know that both the Jews and the Romans wanted to do it so bad that they became murderous. If they wanted to stop this movement of Christianity, all they would have had to have done is muster up the body. Just show us the body. If someone had produced the body of Jesus Christ, Christianity would have been dead before it started. We never even would have heard of Jesus Christ except for in some obscure history book. But they preached a risen Lord. And by Acts chapter four, verse four, the church is numbering 5,000 men. That's over 5,000, over 10,000 people total in the small town of Jerusalem where they could have seen with their eyes whether or not he was risen from the dead. In a matter of a couple hundred years, Rome, who crucified Christ, becomes a Christian nation. The tomb was empty. It's impossible that the disciples or anybody else stole the body, and the body has never been seen. I want us now to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, please. The evidence from 1 Corinthians 15 is concerning eyewitness evidence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's start reading together in verse 1. Paul writing, says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you had believed in vain, meaning without effect. Verse 3 For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Here is the message, the gospel message that Paul received from the Lord that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel message. That Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, meaning for our sins. That he was indeed buried. That he spent three days in the tomb. And that he rose on the third day, again, according to the scriptures, as was prophesied. Now look what he says in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, that is James, the earthly brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." Here we see that Paul says that Jesus Christ appeared to more than 500 people at one time. If we put that together with the gospel accounts and the other people that he says here, we have the three women that went to the tomb, according to Matthew and Mark, the three women that went to the tomb that morning that Jesus appeared to. We have the two on the road to Emmaus. We have the disciples. We have James, who was Jesus' earthly brother. And we have Paul and the 500. That means at least 518 eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus Christ. It says in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 that he appeared to them with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. So for over 40 days, the Lord showed himself to 518 or more people. Now it's very interesting what Paul says in verse 6. After he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. The book of 1 Corinthians was, wrote, was written in AD 56. That is just about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he is saying here is, go ask him yourself. He appeared to more than 500. They're still alive. It was only 20 years ago. How many of you here were alive for the assassination of um, um, uh, uh, JFK? A lot of you. All right. I wasn't here. Um, But JFK, that's been well over 20 years now, hasn't it? Ooh, how long has that been? Oh, never mind. It's been a long time since JFK. But listen, many of you who are witnesses to that are still alive. It would be as if someone wrote a document that claimed to be authoritative and circulated it throughout the nation and said, JFK rose on the third day. Thousands saw him. Go and ask him. They're still alive. How many people would that person have to ask before they figured out that that document that was being circulated was not truthful? Nobody came forward when 1 Corinthians was circulated 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and said that's not truthful. There were people who could verify and say, yeah, I'm one of those 500, I saw him. I saw the risen Lord. If 518 witnesses to the living body where each should take the witness stand and spend three minutes testifying, including cross-examination, that would mean that there were over 26 hours of eyewitness testimony. 26 hours of eyewitness testimony. Can you imagine them on, on, at the little thingamajigger they sit in giving the defense? I saw them. I saw him, number 499. I saw him, 512. I saw him, 513. I saw him, 517. I saw him, 518. I saw him. 26 hours later. And now the prosecution. Uh, Who do you call to the stand? Oh, gee whiz. Uh, We haven't got a single person that's ever seen the dead body of Jesus Christ. But we don't believe he raised from the dead. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? 26 hours of eyewitness to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and not one voice in all of history, in any document or any scientific study, has been shown to say, I saw the body. History is absolutely deafening with the silence of testimony to the dead body of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen. He rose from the dead. Amen? I want you to know also that all of these people mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15 were not, nece- were not at the time, followers of Jesus Christ. Many would say, hey, well, he appeared to the followers, and the followers wanted to believe that he rose again, and it was like a mass hallucination. They all saw it, and they thought they saw it, and they really wanted it to be true, and so it was true for them. That's not true. James, who's mentioned here, the brother of our Lord, was an enemy of Jesus Christ during his ministry. He was there in Nazareth when they tried to throw Jesus from the cliff. He thought he was absolutely loony. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. After he saw the risen Lord, he became a pillar in the church and was murdered for his faith in the risen Lord. Paul the Apostle was a persecutor and a murderer of Christians. He saw the risen Lord and became, well, Paul the Apostle. Which brings us to the evidence from the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts, please, chapter 2. The evidence from the book of Acts. Now I want to remind you of a little bit of context that back in our text, it said in Mark 16, 14, excuse me, that the disciples were gathered in the room together in disbelief. And We're told in the parallel account in John 20, verse 19, that they were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. So we have the disciples not believing not looking for the resurrection, afraid of the people around them, cowering together in a locked room. And then we have Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost. Peter is going to preach the risen Lord in the same town where he was crucified in the same town where he allegedly rose from the dead, the crux of his message is going to be that this Jesus whom you crucified is risen from the dead. As we read through the second half of his sermon, I want you to think, what can bring the transformation from the one who denied Jesus Christ, from the one who said, in effect, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying, I don't know Jesus. So now boldly preaching him to the effect of 3,000 getting saved at his first sermon. What could affect such a change if it was not the risen Lord being manifest in his presence and then the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him, the promise of the Father being made possible through the resurrection of the Son? Acts chapter 2, start reading in verse 22. Peter speaking. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus a Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of the Messiah... Now he's quoting from the book of Psalms. I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Peter continues and says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. In other words, you could go see David in the tomb. Verse 30, And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne, that is the Messiah, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the hearts and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I want you to notice there that they did not respond and say, oh, come on, Peter. He's not risen from the dead. Nobody in town has seen him. In fact, we, can, we have the dead body or the tomb. Is, he's still there in the tomb. You understand that when they responded to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, not one voice came forward and said, that's not true. Quite to the contrary. Everyone there who only days earlier was shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now they're saying, what should we do? Next verse, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting to them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Unbelievable. 3,000 souls that day responding to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Not one voice in all of history saying, no, he didn't. Or we saw the body. All it would have taken was a body. And Peter and Christianity would have died on the spot. You never would have heard of it. What can account for the turnaround of Peter for an absolute coward who denied his Lord to a powerful preacher that confessed him before thousands, except for the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John going up to the temple to worship. And there is the lame man that used to beg for things there at the gate, beautiful. And they're coming through and the lame man is looking toward them, wanting to receive something from them. And Peter says, gold and silver I have not, but what I do have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ in Nazarene, stand up and walk. And Peter reaches down and grabs him by the arm and pulls him up. And the Lord heals him. And the man begins walking and leaping and praising And everyone around sees that he's been healed. And they're like, what? This guy's healed. We know this guy. He's been lame here, lame forever. He's healed. Who did it? And people begin to move toward Peter and John to revere and honor and extol them. And I want you to see how Peter and John react to it. Acts chapter three, verse 11. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called porch of Solomon, full of amazement. But Peter saw this, the people running around him, amazed at him. And he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety, we had made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. That's the story of Barabbas. Verse 15. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now that is a transformed life. That is a life that has seen the risen Lord. Number one, he had the boldness and the power in the Holy Spirit to say, I don't have any money, dude, but what I have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And in faith, he reaches down and he grabs him and pulls him to his feet. And the man hits the ground and he's healed. That's a transformed life. But secondly, everybody then begins to give attention to Peter and to John. And they're coming around Peter and John marveling at them. Now, the pre-resurrection Peter would have gone, Yeah! Yeah, that's it! Yeah, I did it! (laughs) Well, John a little bit, but mostly me. (laughs) I did it! Because remember Peter and John? They were the ones who continually argued who was the greatest. How many times in the Gospels did the Lord have to rebuke them because they were engaged in an argument about which one of them was the greatest? Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus knelt down and washed their feet, afterwards, they began to argue about who was the greatest. These guys were sick cowards. And look what happens when they see the risen Lord and experience the power of the Holy Spirit, a transformed life. No longer, I'm the greatest, but hey guys, don't look at me. It is by the name of Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, I saw him, that this man is healed in the presence of everybody. Acts chapter 4 Peter and John and the boys keep on preaching and they get in trouble with the religious leaders, the same religious leaders who condemned Jesus to death. And the religious leaders command them to no longer teach the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. And they arrest Peter. And now the, the disciples are beginning to be threatened with their freedom and indeed with their life if they continue preaching about Jesus Christ. And so look what Peter says in verse 19, Acts chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. That's a transformed life. Forty days earlier or so, or a couple months earlier, he was denying Jesus Christ three times because of some little girls. Hey, weren't you one of him? I don't know him. And now he is standing before the religious leaders of Israel who have the power to imprison him and to take his life from him. And he says, hey, dude, I'm not going to listen to you. I've got to listen to God. I saw Jesus risen from the dead. And then they go and they pray for more boldness. And later on, they're flogged. They're persecuted. They're beat for their belief in the risen Lord. And they continue to preach with more boldness. Every single disciple went on to be martyred for his faith. Peter was crucified upside down because he testified of a risen Lord. Stop saying Jesus is Lord. Say that Caesar is Lord and we won't kill you. I can't say that. I saw Jesus risen from the dead. He is Lord. Then we're going to crucify you. If you're going to crucify me, please do it upside down. I'm not worthy to die in the manner that my Savior died. James the apostle was run through with a sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then stoned to death. The only disciple that didn't uh, die a martyr's death was John. They tried. They put him in a vat of boiling oil, and he wouldn't boil. And so they took him out, and they sent him to the Isle of Patmos, where he received the book of Revelation. That's pretty cool. But they all died a martyr's death for their belief in the risen Lord. Who in the world is going to stand here and tell me that they did that for a lie? Or that they did that with any doubt whatsoever in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead? These men were absolutely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they saw him. And everyone that they preached to said, yeah, that tomb is empty. Never seen a body. I want to be saved. What should I do? Repent. All right and they repent. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, don't turn there, but I'll just tell you, Paul was on his way to kill Christians in Damascus to uh, torture them, to kill them, to arrest them, and he uh, has a run-in with the risen Lord. The risen Lord appears to him. Paul is knocked down on the road. He's blinded. Jesus commissions him, says, I want you to be a preacher for me. I want to show you how much you must suffer for me. Opens up his eyes. Paul's life has changed. Understand what Paul left behind. Paul was a leader in Israel. He trained under one of the greatest rabbis Israel has ever known. He was respected and revered within Judaism. And Paul laid that aside for a Savior who was crucified by the Jews. Paul was just like the thousands of other Jews who had faith in Jesus Christ and that they laid aside all of their national identity to a certain degree. They are willing to give up everything. They gave up the Sabbath and they began to worship on Sunday. They stopped sacrificing. What has to happen in the mind of a Jew in that time for them to stop sacrificing? Only the risen Lord. They move from the Sabbath to Sunday. They stop sacrificing. They stop um, uh, uh, celebrating the normal Passover meal. And now they're taking the Lord's Supper. They exchange the totality of their identity for this man, Jesus Christ. It only makes sense that he must have rose from the dead. And it says, Paul says rather in Philippians chapter 3, let me read it to you. Paul, having left that life behind, given his life to the Lord, says in Philippians 3, 7, "...whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attend to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul saw the risen Lord and he said, from this point on, everything else in my life is rubbish in comparison to knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He said, I'm so positive that the Lord rose from the dead that he's my savior and I'm laying up treasure in heaven that I don't consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory I shall see in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11, don't go, I'll read it to you. It's better just listen to. 1 Corinthians 11 is the summation of Paul's ministry what he went through for Jesus Christ because he was so convinced that he was the risen Lord. Second Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, Paul talking about other people who served the Lord. He said, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments. I've been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, There is a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And Paul did it all for the gospel of Jesus Christ and was able to say, I don't consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that I shall see when I am resurrected unto the Lord who has been risen. Are you convinced that Jesus rose from the dead? Are you convinced? Then what are you going to do about it? I'm charging you right now in the presence of many, what are you going to do about it? What is the commitment of your life to the gospel of God? What is the commitment of your life to the good news that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures? What are you going to do about it tomorrow, Christian? Will you live a resurrected, and empowered life like Peter, no longer fearing man by having the boldness to snatch men and women from the gates of hell? and see them delivered into the kingdom of God? Will you be like Paul, who had everything at his fingertips as a wealthy, famous, respected Jew, and said, I count it all trash if I might just share in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? What are you going to do? What's your life about? What should it be about? Lord, we thank you for the sure truth that you have rose from the dead. And Lord, I would ask now that you'd bring our hearts in line with that reality. That you would well up in us a passion to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us here were like those disciples, afraid, locked up together, not really sure, doubting. But Lord, you have appeared to us today through the preaching of your word. We have seen you risen and exalted And so commission us, God. Speak to us now to go forth into all the nations making disciples, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to offer to you now the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not that I can give it to you, but it is available to every single Christian. Perhaps you're a Christian and you know, man, I, I, I should be preaching, that I should be sharing the gospel. Not necessarily preaching at a church maybe, but just letting people know I should be speaking of this risen Lord. I should be making him known among my family, among my friends. But there is a spirit of fear in you. You're afraid to bring it up. You're afraid to mention his name. Listen, God did not give you a spirit of fear. That is not from God. He has given you a spirit of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. But after the resurrection, what transformed the life of Peter was the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And so if you just feel like you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives, maybe for the very first time you're a Christian, but you feel like you lack that power and that boldness. Maybe for the very first time you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you just need a fresh feeling. You know you've received it, but you're saying, gee whiz, Lord, I am stirred. Lord, I, I, I want to serve you. I want to have a passion for the gospel and for the lost. I need a fresh and filling of your Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask you to stand where you're at right now, and we're going to pray. If you need the power of the Spirit in your life today to be a witness of Jesus Christ, stand where you are. Sometimes the Jews used to extend their hands in prayer as a picture of receiving from the Lord. I just want you to put your hands out like this. In a mindset of, Lord, I'm going to receive from you now. Yeah. Father, we thank you for the promise. Jesus, you said it's better that you ascend unto heaven, that the promise of the Father might come, the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you now, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, you know what each heart's need. We are asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon each one here. We are asking for a fresh filling for each one that is in need. We are asking that your spirit would come upon us in fullness of measure, God. That your spirit would begin to overflow from us. That there would come torrents of living water from us. That there would come a new holy boldness. There would come a new understanding of the gospel and a new passion for the lost. God, that you would break our hearts for the lost. And there would come a boldness and a desire and a power to witness of the risen Lord. And God, that you would impart gifts right now. That even at this moment, you would call pastors. You would call teachers. You would call evangelists. You would call missionaries. You would call apostles and prophets and administrators and all that the church needs to see the gospel go forth. Lord, that you would raise them up now and you would impart gifts. The world is never the same because you rose from the dead. God, we ask that this coastline would never be the same because we understand it and walk in the power of it to the glory of God. Thank you, God. Thank you for your empowering. Minister to our hearts as we proclaim the risen Lord and worship now.